Well, let me invite you now to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. As you know, we are working our way through this uh, incredible book. Um, This is the first time I've preached through this book, so I'm learning so much as I'm going here, and I hope that you are too. But not just learning head knowledge, but allowing God to shape and fashion your heart and your thinking about what he's calling you to do and what he's calling us as a church to do. So, Steve, would you come and uh, read this passage, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. Let's stand as we read God's word together. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory. He did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Lord, help us today as we seek to make sense of your word and as we seek to apply it to our lives in a right way. Give us wisdom, give us discernment, Lord. What we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And Lord, what we are not, would you make us, Lord, through the preaching of your word? And Lord, allow me simply to be your 
messenger this morning, this your mouthpiece, so that your word, Lord, can be proclaimed and heard. And Lord, that our hearts can be fashioned and shamed by it, Lord. By, by means of your Holy Spirit, working through the word in our lives. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the melodic line, you could say the theme of the book of Acts, is the continuing acts of Jesus by his word, through the apostles, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I say continuing because Acts is part two of Luke's record to this man, Theophilus. Volume one is Luke's gospel where Jesus is revealed. We see his life, his ministry, and his death. And volume two is Acts, where Jesus is preached and the church is formed. And this melodic line is given to us in Acts 1.8, which I know we've gone to time and time again because it really sets forth what this book is all about. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But there are also two resounding and repeating drumbeats that accompany that melodic line all the way to the end of the book in chapter 28. The drumbeat of what is unstoppable and the drumbeat of what is inevitable. Now imagine if Jesus showed up here at church this Sunday morning. Of course, I would step aside and let him speak. But imagine he came to us and he said to us, look, I am telling you that for the next 10 years, you are going to be my witnesses. Here in San Lorenzo, San Leandro, Castro Valley, Hayward area. Here in the the Bay Area in California. And then to the end of the earth. In particular, in Rivne, Ukraine, in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. And he's promising that 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 ministry would be fruitful and it would multiply. Would you want to be a part of that? Would you sign up to be a servant of the Lord in that particular context? Would you be excited about what he was doing? Well, friends, by the time we come to Acts chapter 12, it's been over 10 years. Jesus died in AD 33. And what we'll find here is Herod Herod Agrippa, in this passage, dies at A.D. 44. It's truly amazing how the gospel has spread so much in just 10 years. And one truth we can clearly see is that the gospel advance is unstoppable. And this is the first part of a a two-part, might want to say, drumbeat that is resounding throughout the book of Acts. The gospel advance is unstoppable. Let me show you how that unfolds in the structure of Acts. As the witness takes place and the church is expanded, we find Luke banging the drumbeat of gospel growth and impact. And at the end of each section, Luke gives us a powerful Summary, And these would be good to to highlight in your Bible so that you can see them as markers of, of the expanding growth of the church, of the gospel witness. At Pentecost, we've already seen this. At the end of the section there, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. At the end of the section that deals with Jerusalem, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. At the end of uh, the the ministry in Judea and Samaria, we find these words, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And then, as ministry takes place in Antioch, we find here at the end of chapter 12, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And then at the end of the ministry in Asia Minor, we find, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And then as the ministry in the Aegean region finishes up, 
We see there in verse 20 of chapter 19, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Even the last verses in the book of Acts, where Paul is in prison in Rome, it says this, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now understand this, friends. Rome is the hub of the world. And and Luke is telling Theophilus, the gospel advance is unstoppable. It will come through the preaching of the word, through the ministry and the witness of the apostles, and it will continue. It will not stop. Drumbeat after drumbeat after drumbeat after drumbeat. And friends, it's important for us to be reminded that drumbeat has not stopped. That the drumbeat of the advance of the gospel continues to this day. And even though in our world right now, in a particular region, there seems to be this oppression from a particular country called Russia over people uh, in Ukraine, where the church, by the way, is growing strong and has been for the last number of years. That the gospel is still going forward. Because that's what happens until the Lord returns. But that's the first drumbeat. The gospel goes forward and is unstoppable. But Luke, he's a realist. And he knows that the first drumbeat is only one side of the gospel coin. And so gospel advance is unstoppable, but he also wants us to see that gospel suffering is inevitable. Gospel advance does not happen without suffering or hardship. And we get a glimpse of that in chapter 9, when Ananias goes to Saul, who's just arrived in Damascus, and he says, I want you to give Saul these words. And it's basically Saul's commission. And I want you to notice what it says. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In other words, so so Saul, who will be Paul, is chosen to be the the apostle of the Gentiles. His ministry is going to have just this this large-reaching impact to the Gentile world. But... Look at verse 16. For I will show him how much he must, what? Suffer for the sake of my name. You see what Christ is saying to Saul? You will be my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles, but your gospel advance will involve much suffering. And we know that the apostle Paul suffered much. Let me just write down 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 33. I'm not going to read it all, but I'll just highlight to you what he says. Imprisonment, beatings, stonings, floggings, being shipwrecked, the, the murderous pursuit of Jews and Gentiles, going without sleep or food, being cold and naked, and so on and so on and so on. He served the Lord faithfully. The gospel spread, but there was a lot of suffering. And so when we come to Acts 12, Luke seeks to drill into our hearts that the unstoppable gospel advance uh, through inevitable suffering. It advances through inevitable suffering. It's an exciting, sober, and true reality. Now my question is, do you still want to sign up? See, we're happy with the gospel advance. But are we also content with the suffering and persecution that comes along with it? Now, in Acts, there are two major apostles that really are the focus of the book. Peter, of course, Acts chapters 1 through Acts chapter 12. We see him kind of And here he shows up just briefly in chapter 15, but it's primarily Peter in these first 12 chapters. He is the apostle to the Jews. Then Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 13, verses uh, 13 through chapter 28. And so Acts 12 serves as a, a marker to the end of Peter's ministry. 
And in particular, the preparation for what is to come, and that's Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, where gospel events is unstoppable, but will come through suffering. Acts chapter 12, in this particular passage, we find Peter imprisoned. And then in Acts chapter 23 through 28, we find the apostle Paul in prison. So imprisonment is just part of this natural flow of what God has for his particular apostle. And friends, there's a question looming over our heads, isn't there? If you are a follower of Christ and you want the gospel to advance, are you willing to suffer so that gospel advance can take place? And and unfortunately, the, the church in America is less concerned with suffering. In fact, the gospel that is often promoted is a gospel of anti suffering of health, of wealth, and prosperity. As if suffering is an evidence you don't have enough faith or or somehow there's a problem with you. That's not what Scripture says here in the book of Acts. Now let's step back and just look at the structure of our chapter here. It's a sandwich, really, with a, a top and a tail. A top and a tail of death. We have the death of James at the top, At the tail, we have the death of Herod. And in between, we have these really two accounts of God's deliverance of Peter. So let's jump in, first of all, to what I'm calling the hand of evil. The hand of evil. Who is the one who wields the hand of evil? Well, it's Herod the king. But which Herod is this? We've heard Herod a lot of times. You read the Gospels, Herod shows up, right? Um. Well, there's really three Herods that we focus in on. The one we have here is Herod Agrippa, but he's the grandson of Herod the Great. If you remember Herod the Great, he's the one that was around when Jesus is born. He's the one that that, that infamously uh, had all these, these boys slaughtered under two years of age, right? So he was a bloody uh, Herod. Of course, Herod simply means king. It means ruler, okay? Then his father was Herod Antipas, who, who killed John the Baptist. And, by, and while he was Herod, he was, he was called a tetrarch, which means he only ruled over the fourth of the, of the region. When Herod Agrippa comes on the scene, he's a young tyrant, and, and some of his best friends are going to be future emperors of Rome because he was sent to Rome for his education. And, and these were his buddies. Caligula, does that ring a bell? And Claudius, I mean, one after the other, were emperors. And as they took their positions, they gave Agrippa more and more uh, area as far as Judea was concerned. So he is this powerful Herod, this powerful leader now in Judea with the backing and the support of Rome. And friends, Herod stands for us as a representative of all human leaders who are opposed to the spread of the gospel whether they be kings or presidents or prime ministers or dictators or emperors or teachers or politicians, whatever they may be, if they're standing opposed and they're in a position of authority, this Herod is speaking about them. I want you to notice, first of all, James is executed. As we've noted before, opposition to the gospel starts with soft persecution. It starts with social mockery and ridicule. Christians are stupid. They're kind of ignorant people. They're simplistic. They, they just have to live their life with a crutch, and they promote these things through newspapers and talk shows and blogs and social media, and they sway people's opinion about them. And then they bring legal pressure in, secondly, establishing laws that impact Christians And then they say, you know, you're not allowed to gather. You're not allowed to to evangelize. You're not allowed to sing. You must conform to society's ideologies and practice the things that we have mandated, even if it violates what you believe. And then this legal um, sense will move now to the, the, the actual legal and tolerated violence. Why? Because Christians are now not keeping the law. And because of their attitudes and their behaviors, they're affecting your economy. And and they they don't obey the law. They they need to be punished. And we'll kind of look the other way if you don't, if you know, if you kind of act toward them. Why? Because we understand they're just, they're a 
They're a snare to us. And then, of course, the next thing would be to increase the violence, in particular of the leaders, putting them in prison, making them an example, sometimes even uh, uh, execute them if necessary. And then they move down, kind of top down now, to the, the other leaders, and then ultimately down to the persecution, the active persecution of Christians that are present in that particular circumstance. So there's, there's a whole process going on here. So, so when we read the expression, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, we need to see that it's an expression that encompasses the steady agenda against the Christians in general. And persecution and, and violence in Jerusalem had now heated up. And the implication here is that it is widespread, but James, the brother of John, is the one who is put to death. And the expression killed with a sword isn't just saying, well, you don't happen to find a sword and kill him. It wasn't as if James happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and there was a scuffle and he died. No, this is an expression that communicates an officially sanctioned execution. And usually it was done in one of two ways, beheading or actually thrusting the sword through the person's heart. So so Herod is making a point here. He's making a political statement. He wants the Christians to see him, but he also wants the Jews to know that he's acting on their behalf. We're told this is the reason why Herod is behaving this way, because he wanted to please the Jews. It was always a political thing. And friends, there's a lesson we must learn here. Don't underestimate the wickedness of evil. Now, maybe two months ago, you would have said, you know, we're living in a pretty good world. There seems to be a lot of peace, a lot of progress and stuff like that. And then February 24th comes. And we see evil rise up on full display for all to see. I'm not being political here, friends. I'm being real. We're seeing it displayed in our midst. And it's not a popular statement because our secular culture wants to preach to us that a good heart is the clean slate of every human being. But friends, that is not what the scriptures teach. They say man without God is tainted with sin throughout. That's the doctrine of man's depravity. Man's depravity doesn't mean that everyone's running around, you know, trying to kill each other with axes. It's saying that no matter what you do, even if it's good, it's tainted with sin. Why? Because sin remains in us. And scripture says that man left to himself will drift toward more and more evil. That's what brought on God's judgment with the flood. Listen to Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then at the end of the book of Judges, we read this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is anarchy, friends. And when people function with anarchy, doing their own desires, what they want, sin is just going to be rampant. Friends, the history of man bears witness to this truth. Every time man settles into this unrealistic belief in the goodness of man, the Adolf Hitlers and the Joseph Stalins and the Benito Mussolinis and the Idi Amins and the Vladimir Putins of this world raise their ugly heads to remind us of the wickedness of evil. That man left to himself will shake his fist against God. That he is in desperate need to be delivered from the sin that permeates his whole being. Friends, when we buy into the secular myth, We're walking away from gospel truth. We need a savior. All these people I mentioned needed a savior. Why? Because they're permeating with sin throughout their being that is shaping and fashioning every decision that they're making. James is executed. Peter now, we're told, is imprisoned. 
Herod has every intention of giving Peter the same fate. We, we have these, these anchors of uh, the, the days of unleavened bread and, and the Passover giving us some understanding that James is executed. Peter now is in prison for the exact purpose of holding on to him so that after the Passover, Herod can once again take another of the leaders of the church and present him to the people. You can't do it during those feast times, but you want to celebrate it afterwards? Let's go for it. And so Peter is put in prison with a heavy guard. And, and, and Herod is waiting now for the time where he can bring him out to the people. Now it's worth noting here that there is a parallel of comparison taking place here. I don't know if you caught this at all. Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover. Peter is arrested and put into prison during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So was Jesus. Peter is held in prison until after Passover to be brought out to the people. So was Jesus. Jesus dies and is delivered from the grave. James dies and Peter will be delivered from certain death. And all of this to bring glory to God. And friends, one of the tensions that rises from this text is the sovereignty of God in choosing the death of James against the deliverance of Peter. And you can just imagine, you know, maybe a couple of months after this account, uh, there's a church gathering, and the mother of James happens to sit down next to the mother of Peter. And she turns to Peter's mother, and she says, why did God choose to take my son, James, in such a violent manner, but chose to spare your son, Peter. And Peter's mother just sits in silence, saddened by the heartache that her son was spared and James was not. Now, friends, this is real. This is, this is how things like this play out. And friends, it's a helpful tension, isn't it? Because it's a real tension. I'm sure that it's the tension that Theophilus is thinking through as he's reading through this account by Luke. Why does God choose to allow one person to suffer and die while another is to be delivered? Why does God allow the suffering of a whole family but spares another? And these are questions, friends, that many of our Ukrainian friends are asking this very day. Why did that bomb land on my friend's house and not on mine? Why have they lost their son? Why have they lost their daughter, but mine are still with me? How is it I'm able to get out, but they were not? And these are questions Slavic churches are having to wrestle with as the evil dictator Putin unleashes and Unjust suffering on the people of Ukraine. But the tension, friends, can be far more commonplace. Why did my parents die of COVID and yours did not? Why did my child get a scholarship to Stanford and yours did not? Why do I have this debilitating disease and others do not? Why do I have a flat tire today and other people don't? The answer for the believer is quite simple. Because it brings glory to God. That seems like a really kind of a trite pie in the sky answer, doesn't it? And friends, both James and Peter, however, had prophecies hanging over their heads. You might want to turn to Mark chapter 10 and verse 39. James, in particular, and John had asked to be seated on either side of Jesus in his glory. And what does Jesus say to them? Mark 10, 39. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now the cup and the baptism both are referring to Jesus' suffering and death. And what we have in this passage is the fulfillment of Jesus' words about James. Well, what about Peter? Well, you can jot down John chapter 21 and verse 18. 
at the end of John's gospel, having called Peter to tend his sheep, he says the following to Peter, and then John makes a comment about it afterwards. John 21, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. I just want to pause here. This he shows, or he said, to show by what kind of death he was to what? Glorify God. The point here is this. Both death and deliverance bring glory to God. Friends, we live in a sin-cursed world, and, and though Christ's death I say through Christ's death, we have been rescued from the power and the penalty of sin. And our hope is not in this world, but in the world to come. As the old song says, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. It's in heaven. That's where our focus is. And friends, what we know for sure is that it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. James is dead. Yes. But Peter will also be dead in God's timing and for God's glory. And both James and Peter are taken home by God in his timing and for his glory. So get this. This is so important. No one can end your life before God is ready to call you home. No one. When it's God's time, You can't get out of it. (laughs) And the reality is you may, understandably, miss those whom you're living life with. But we need to raise our understanding of the prospect and the beauty of heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And friends, the problem for us is that we have so anchored our hope in this world rather than in the world to come. And we're far more concerned about our stewardship here than the glorious prospects of our promised home in heaven. So James is executed. Peter is imprisoned. And the church responds. How does the church respond? Well, they pick up arms and rebel, right? So what happens? They go on social media and decry their injustice, walking around with all kinds of signs and placards. They go to the courts and sue Herod for what he's done. No. My friends, hear this. We need a fresh perspective. The world can have the education system, the media, the state, the entertainment industry, the publishing houses, the, 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 the wow factor, the cool factor. They can have all the might, all the riches, all the laws, all the power brokers, all the banks, and the, all the parliaments, all the weapons they can muster, and it will pale in comparison to the power of prayer. When evil is powerful and unyielding and we feel we can do nothing, we can pray. Prayer is not resignation. Oftentimes, you know, people say, well, yeah, I know you can pray, but you need to do something. Well, yeah, okay, you do need to do something, but don't neglect the prayer. Prayer is boldness. It's confidence. It's dependence on our faithful and sovereign God. Prayer is mighty because prayer connects us to God in heaven. And he who sits in heaven laughs at kings and rulers who are shaking their fist at him. And he does whatever he pleases. And we have the privilege to commune with him. The hand of evil, friends. We can pray. Secondly, the hand of providence. We have these two episodes And I'm trying to work through them pretty fast because they're there kind of to to help us run through but also see God's hand of providence. And certainly what we see here with the death of James is a political and symbolic statement by Herod. And he, he wants to make sure that the Jews are excited because, oh, he's waiting to bring out Peter and to receive the glory for himself, right? 
And although we can see that Peter is delivered, don't think that Peter does not suffer. (laughs) Because I don't think the guards were like, well, Peter, come over here. Yep, sure. Are you okay? You want some water or something like that? No, I mean, there's, there's violence going on here, right? And he is next guy. He probably got a beaten while he was in prison, okay? Now, I want you to notice, first of all, this, this, this section from verses, uh, verses 6 through 11 that I'm calling bringing him out. But we have here a drowsy deliverance. And Peter certainly is in bondage. Luke wants us to understand the heightened security that Herod demands for Peter's incarceration here. You have to remember that in Acts chapter 5, what happened to those who were put in public prison? The angel of the Lord comes and opens the door and says, this way, go back to where you were and keep preaching. All right? And all the people wake up the next morning. It's like, where are they at? I don't know where they're at. All right? So he knows that somehow Peter has gotten out with the apostles before. So he gives them a special attachment of guards for this particular troublemaking leader and this troublemaking cult. Peter is securely in prison from a human perspective. He's surrounded by guards, 16 in all, that are rotating responsibilities, and he is chained with each arm to two soldiers. This is is how he is as they're rotating. They're rotating guards, they're rotating the chains, but he has these guards that are surrounding him. And what do we find Peter doing on the night before his likely death? He's sleeping. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would be able to sleep the night before my supposed execution. Certainly Peter is a man of faith. Jesus had grown him, had matured him, and prepared him to lead the apostles in carrying the gospel, in particular to the Jews, and taking it out to the Gentiles. But notice that it's not Peter's faith that delivers him. That's, that's a resounding thing in this chapter. It's not Peter and his faith that gets him out of jail. In fact, what we see is Peter rather drowsy and confused and needing help. So we notice Peter's deliverance, angelic power. The angel of the Lord stood shining brightly next to Peter in the cell. And I'll just summarize it with four statements. This next little section here, wake up, get up, dress up, and keep up, right? And he comes along and he wakes Peter by striking him on the side. And he says, get up quickly. Peter gets up. Of course, he's groggy. Then the angel says, put your sandals and your clothes on. I mean, like you have to tell me what to do. Well, he needed to tell him what to do. Then he says, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And Peter obeys and follows the angel. Then we read in verse 8, he did not know what, he was, what was being done by the angel. Uh, didn't know that it was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So he's kind of in this, this kind of droggy kind of... I don't know, kind of weird state. Not sure. You know what I'm talking about. You're kind of not sure if I'm awake, if I'm asleep. What's happening here? And then he watched as they passed guard station after guard station with Jedi powers like, this is not the apostle you're looking for. This is not the apostle that you're looking for. And then out to the gate that leads into the city, this big iron gate, and it just opens wide out into the streets, and they get about a block away, and the angel's gone. Now, friends, it wasn't Peter's faith that got him out of jail, but the hand of divine providence to the angel of the Lord. Now, I also want to say it wasn't that Peter was faithless. When he was given instructions, what did he do? He listened, he obeyed, he followed. But it was God, through his angel, that gets him out of jail. Now, it would appear that Peter's faith was not necessarily pointed toward his deliverance. He was likely expecting that he was going to die. And I'm sure based on what he experienced with Jesus earlier, as we read in Luke's gospel, he wanted to die well, that he would finish his witness for the Lord in such a way that it would please him. And friends, there's two kinds of prayers that God's children should pray in times of distress. Here's the first one. Lord, I've done all I can do. And now I can do nothing more, so I'm trusting you to get me out of this. Second one is this, Lord, if you don't, (laughs) I'm trusting you to give me wisdom and strength and boldness to face this trial in a way that will bring you honor 
in glory. Lord, deliver me because I know you can deliver me. But if you don't, help me to die well. And Lord, help me to to continue to be faithful to you to the end. And then we find in verse 11, Peter's realization of this divine rescue. He lays it out for us. Peter clearly understood that the Lord had rescued him from the hand of Herod, from the expectation of the Jews. So there was something going here. Herod wanted to control. He wanted the Jews to, to expect his death. But the Lord comes along in his providence. He's been in control the whole time. And right at the 11th hour, the hand of God comes and he rescues him. Just like we saw in Acts chapter 11, verse 21. The hand of God is always at work. And friends, we need to remember that even when the hand of evil raises its ugly head in powerful and daunting ways that seem so overwhelming to us that the hand of the Lord is still at work. And the hand of Herod and the hand of the Lord are not equal. The hand of Herod or Herod's may be powerful, may cause all sorts of evil to happen. But the hand of the Lord is fully and completely aware and in control and orchestrating the affairs of this world, even through the sinfulness of man, to accomplish his purposes. That's the getting him out. Now the keeping him out. And we have here a doubting prayer. After Peter realizes that his deliverance is due to the mighty hand of God. He kind of gets his bearings and tries to figure out where he's at. And then he knows, ha-ha, I know where one of the churches is gathering. It's at Mary's house, the mother of one called John Mark. Remember that name. He'll come up in a little bit. And so he goes and he starts to knock on the door. Now I want you to notice verse 5 of our text once again. And notice how the church had responded to Herod's evil violence against the church. We're told there they prayed. How? Earnestly. The idea there is fervently, zealously, constantly. In other words, they were praying genuinely and persistently. But for what? James had been persecuted. So were they praying for Peter to have courage and strength to endure the interrogation? Possibly, probably. Were they praying for that Peter would, would die well? Probably. Were they praying for God to intervene in the impossible situation, much like he had done previously? That's also very possible, but we're not told. We're not told specifically what they're praying, but probably things along those lines. But it's the night before Herod was to bring uh, him out before the people and to begin this process of execution. And what we read next is both humorous and revealing. I just kind of put three anchors to kind of guide us through this little section here. First of all, the door. What happens here at the door? Peter answers, uh, the answer, Peter, the answer to their prayer comes knocking at their door. This is why they're gathering to pray. And he knocks on the door, and, and Rhoda, the servant girl, comes and speaks to him, and she hears his voice, and she realizes this is Peter. And so she runs back to tell the others. Now, friends, Just so you know, if I come to your house tonight running from the secret police, here's what I want you to do. Please open the door and let me in. Because you see, Peter is still in the place of insecurity. He's still on the wrong side of the door, right? If you want to look at it that way. He still needs to get in. And so now we have this doubt. While the church is praying for his courage and his endurance and his deliverance, Rhoda comes in excitedly and says, hey, everyone, Peter's outside, and they don't believe her. The question is, do they believe in answered prayer? And if you ask them, they would say, of course we believe in answered prayer. We're followers of Christ. We're gathered here praying right now. What do you think we believe in? How do they respond to Rhoda? Rhoda, you are out of your mind. You are crazy. Now, this isn't in the text, but probably it says something like this. Rhoda, you've been working hard all day. It's okay if you want to go and get some sleep, you know. But she is not hindered by their doubt. She 
kept repeating and insisting it is Peter at the door. And in the Greek, this is like repeated action. So there's a lot of conversation. And she's standing her ground. No, he's at the door. No, he's at the door. No, he really is at the door. He's really at the door. And then those sophisticated people come up with a theory. Well, maybe what you are experiencing is his angel. Poor angel to be left outside too, right? I mean, let's go to the door. But, we might better use the expression, meanwhile, back in Gotham City, Peter is standing outside the door, still doing what? Knocking. And the third D is is delight. So they go to the door and they open it, and there before them is the one for whom they have been praying. And they were understandably amazed. And and Peter does two things. He tells them the story of his deliverance. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. But notice what he says next. He instructs them to tell the story of his deliverance. Tell these things to James and the brothers. This is a different James, by the way. Don't get confused. And friends, it's a reminder to us of the power of the story of God's providence that can encourage the body of Christ in the face of suffering and persecution. Maybe you you like to read Christian biography and you hear the story of a particular missionary or a pastor from a particular era, era and you hear the story of how God orchestrated things in ways that you couldn't even imagine to bring about his purposes and to bring glory to himself. You read stuff like that and you're like, well, if that can happen, I don't know what God is going to do with me, but I still want to hold on to him and I'm going to persevere. You see, that's, that's the idea here. Tell the story of the church's perseverance. Tell the story. Tell the story. Tell the story. Let people know how God is, is a sovereign God and cares for his church. So friends, this is the hand of providence. And it happens while the hand of evil is at work. But now notice the hand of judgment. We've seen the hand of evil. We've seen the hand of providence. Now we have the hand of judgment, and it's given to us in two stages. And I say two stages because Herod, first of all, is now going to exercise his wrath against the soldiers. You know what happens? It says here, and this is like an understatement, isn't it? No little disturbance among the soldiers. There was no little disturbance. They were running around. They were panicked. They didn't know what to do. Where did Peter go? I mean, we had him. There were 16 of us. What happened here? And, of course, Herod does his investigation, and he finds out that Peter is not around, and he has the, I think it would be the four sentries that were on duty when he departed, and he has them executed. Now, soldiers understand. If you lose someone that's in your possession, this is one of the consequences that can happen. But Herod will not be humiliated by incompetent soldiers. Now, Herod should have remembered something. I'm sure he heard about it from his father or even from the culture about something that happened 10 years earlier when the leader of this sect of Christians, a man by the name of Jesus, was dead and buried in a sealed and secured tomb surrounded by guards. The next morning, his tomb was found empty. Instead, we simply read, Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. He doesn't get it. Now notice God's wrath against Herod. Luke continues this section by showing us God's judgment against Herod in three stages. First of all, the events that are leading up to it. There's this conflict that's happening with these Phoenician cities, Tyre and Sidon. And uh, and there must have been some kind of a a food embargo that he was placing on them because they're like, look, we we, we got to resolve this because we're dependent on on, on Herod for the food for our cities. And so they they talk with one of, of Herod's chief of staff, Blastus is his name. And it seemed to come to some kind of a resolution. But, but Herod understands he has them exactly where he wants them. He had the power to stop uh, the two cities from eating. They were under his complete control. And he was a powerful and clever king. And he knew it. 
And then the Jewish historian tells us about what we see next in the text. The text says, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat on the throne and delivered an oration to them. Josephus tells us that his royal robes were made of silver and glistened in the sun. He wanted to be noticed. He wanted to be glorified. He wanted to be the focus of attention. And we're not given the content of his speech. We're only given the response of the people. And here's how they respond. The voice of God and not of a man. And friends, that is what Herod wanted to hear. That's what his kingly ears longed for, the praise of men and to be seen as a God. Herod, you better look out. Because the angel of the Lord doesn't only strike God's servants to deliver them, he strikes God's enemies to judge them. And Herod, you are opposed to God, and and he will not put up with your arrogance. God doesn't share his glory with anyone. And then we're told the method or the manner of his death, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. We're not told the exact disease that the angel inflicted on Herod, but we know by virtue of the description here, it was a severe disease that led to a painful death. And Luke, by placing this at the end of this account of of persecution and death, is, is suggesting that Herod's death is the judgment of God for his violence against the Christians, the execution of James, and the incarceration of Peter. Friends, the Herods of this world will come and go. They'll rise up, they'll breathe out violence and hatred toward nations and anyone who will stand in their way, and in particular, the people of God. And many people will suffer and die while others will be delivered. Yet despite all, Christ continues his mission to the end of the earth. Now, friends, truly in carrying out the mission of Christ, suffering is inevitable. But the punchline to the story is in Luke, uh, is in Acts chapter 12 here, beginning at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. I mean, all this is happening. But it's not stopping the mission of Christ from heaven through the effective and faithful preaching of the word by the apostles so that it spreads and people are multiplying. The unstoppable gospel advances through inevitable suffering. Now, I know our time is pretty much gone, but I want to land the plane on just three concluding thoughts. So what's God calling us to do and through in this passage? Here's the first thing. I I would say that God is calling us to be people committed to fervent prayer. Now, I don't know about you, friends, but my prayer life has increased significantly over the past few weeks. To see how the evil wickedness of Vladimir Putin unleashed on the country of Ukraine in such a despicable, despicable way has driven me to my knees. The injustices, the atrocities, the deceptive lies... And even the fact that the, the rest of the world just seems to be able to you know, I'll throw you a little bone, but we're going to watch and see what happens, is causing my heart to be angry. And I've got to go to God. I've got to turn to him. And I found myself at a loss as to what I can do. And yet God has had me simmering on this text, screaming in my ear, you can pray, Rod, you can pray, you can pray. And that's part of the reason why we're stopping in the middle of our services and having a a focused time of prayer because God wants us to be people of prayer who believe that prayer works. But then my heart begins to wonder, is my prayer really accomplishing anything? Am I somehow trying to twist God's sovereign ear to act? You can't twist a sovereign God. Augustine's infamous words ring true here. Pray as though everything depends on God. Work as though everything depends on you. Bring your prayer to him. Trust that he is the only one that can meet the need. And yet, as you are given opportunity and responsibility, work hard to do what he's calling you to do. And then I reach out to my brothers in Ukraine, and I shared some of this stuff with you on Realm. 
as they're going through all these different danger zones and trying to get the food shelters up and running and getting people to where they need to go to the border and coming back. This is what I'm hearing them say over and over again. We know that you're praying. We can't believe what God is allowing us to do. We can feel your prayers. Keep praying. Please keep praying. Friends, don't underestimate the power and effectiveness of your prayers. God calls his church to be a praying church. And maybe God, with something that's happening around the world, is trying to stir us up to be more fervent and diligent and deliberate in our prayer. Secondly, he's calling us to be people resting in God's providence. Now, I wonder, friends, do we have a distorted view of God's providence? We often speak of God's providence only when we are protected or delivered or the recipients of God's blessing. But friends, God's providence, his working out of his glorious plan is to be understood in both good and bad times. Let me kind of give you an example. Imagine tomorrow you're driving down the street and your tire blows out and you lose your steering and you swerve off the road into a ditch, just barely missing a tree along the way. And what do you say? Oh, by God's providence, I didn't hit a tree. Isn't God good? Or the day could go this way. You're driving down the road and your tire blows out and you lose your steering and you swerve off the road and you hit a tree. And now you're in the hospital with multiple fractures and we're at that point reluctant to say it was by God's providence that I hit the tree. You See the problem here? Why? Because we've relegated God's providence to only include times of God's deliverance. In other words, providence has become for us a form of Christian luck. But friends, both missing the tree and driving into the tree are God's providence. Last week, I thoroughly enjoyed attending the Shepherds Conference with a number of people from our church and a couple of missionaries and pastor friends. There were nine of us that went. We enjoyed sitting on the words, singing songs with 3,500 other pastors and elders that were there. It was wonderful. Such good fellowship. And then when I got home, things quickly changed. As some of you may know, last Sunday morning, my wife was in pain. We went to the hospital, to the emergency, and had to deal with that. A lot of panic, a lot of tension, a lot of concern. And then, at the same time, we get home from the hospital, and my tire is flat on my vehicle. And so I have to figure out, how am I going to get this tire all taken with? Some people came along and helped me out, but ultimately I had to buy four tires. And then on Wednesday, I have Matias. I'm hosting Matias from Bolivia, and he finds out that there was some some trauma that happened in his his uh, his in-law family, and so it's like, oh, what should I do? What should we kind of kind of sorting through them? We like, all right, you know, I need to go go home. You need to be with your wife. And so now we're trying to figure out how does he get home from here, and how does he do it quickly, and how we can do it in a cost-effective way. And finally, it all works together. Friends, it was wonderful to be at the Shepherds Conference, and God was provident in it. But when we came home, God was still provident. He's still the same God in good times and in difficult times. All those joys and trials and anxieties took place under the guiding hand of God's providence. And friends, that's good to know because when bad times happen, that doesn't mean that God's providence has abandoned us. He is still fully at work seeking to bring glory to himself, even through the difficult, bad, horrible times we may be experiencing. And third and finally, God is calling us to be people who will live our lives with a gospel-driven perseverance. We press on because we know that Christ is not done with his mission on earth. And so we are to be faithful witnesses of, of God's gospel seed and scatter it wherever we go. And some is going to fall on hard hearts. Some of it's going to be choked out by the world. Some of it's going to have some brief interest and then die out. But some will land on hearts prepared by the Lord where people are gloriously saved and the church is multiplied. God's not done with that. 
So friends, he's not done. He's not finished. He is still building his kingdom through the spreading of his word. His gospel advance is unstoppable, and we can be a part of it. And his gospel suffering is inevitable, and we will have to endure it. And so he is calling us to persevere in the face of adversity for the sake of his gospel and the souls of many that he is drawing to himself. Lord, help us today from our understanding of this text and as we look out at the world to realize, Lord, that even though we see wickedness and evil and chaos, whether it be a president of Russia or whether it be the president of the United States or the prime minister of Canada or whoever it might be, Lord, that seems to be shaking their fist at you, it doesn't stop what you're doing on earth. And we may be called to suffer in ways that we had not expected to, in particular, Lord, because we've grown up in the wonderful blessing of being in a country where um, there's been lots of freedom. But Lord, in your providence, things change. But your gospel doesn't. And your commitment doesn't. And your witness doesn't. Help us now as your people to, to wrestle our hearts to be conformed, Lord, to your will to your vision, to your purposes. Evil may stand up and be loud and shake its fist at you, but Lord, your children bow down and worship you because you are a great and sovereign God. And we pray that we would live well and that we would die well. We pray for your deliverance. We pray for your wisdom. We pray, Lord, for your strength. We pray for your endurance. But Lord, we pray most of all that you would be glorified in all of it. Because it's not about us. Lord, it's about you. And we have the certainty of the prospect of heaven because we're your children. So Lord, let us live in light of that with eyes, hearts that are focused on you. Trusting you, even though the times might be tough, times might be bad. Lord, that you're going to be glorified. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.